Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Authoritarian governments are on the rise throughout the world, but there are indications that organized resistance to the policies these governments are implementing are underway in some locations. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at the protest movement in Hong Kong and how it may signal growing pushback to authoritarian leaders and governments. Ann Waltner is a professor and chair of the English Department at the University of Minnesota and is also an expert on Chinese history. We spoke with her by phone from her office on the U's Twin Cities campus. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. A proposed law in Hong Kong that would allow extradition to China caused massive protests to erupt in the city, even shutting down the airport for a time. What can you tell us about the proposed law and why do many citizens in Hong Kong object to it? Well, the proposed law would um, allow the extradition of people from Hong Kong to China to be tried by the Chinese legal system. And I think people in Hong Kong were afraid that there do not exist the same legal protections in China as exist in Hong Kong. And so I think there was fear that people in Hong Kong would be subject to Chinese law. Now, the extradition law um, fairly early in the summer was tabled, and I think it has now pretty much been withdrawn. I think I read somewhere that Carrie Lam, the chief executive in Hong Kong, said the law was dead. Um, so in some ways... Although the extradition law was the spark that set off the protests, the taking away of the law did not in any, in any way go to stop the protests. Well, are we talking about a much larger issue then, such as concern that China is encroaching upon Hong Kong's democracy? Yes, I think, I think that's exactly right. I think that there are fears about the future, and I think the, the extradition law was something that crystallized that. You know... When when um, Hong Kong was returned by Britain to China in 1997, the deal was there would be um, one country, two systems, until 2047. And in 2047, the special status of Hong Kong um, would go away, and Hong Kong would will become just another city in China. And I think that does have people in Hong Kong quite worried, and I think the protests have been articulating that. How has the one country, two systems worked so far? Well, I think it's actually worked pretty well. Um, You know, an American doesn't have to have a visa to go to Hong Kong, and a citizen of the People's Republic does. Hong Kong maintains its own currency, and they still drive on the British side of the road. Those are surface things, but I think they matter. Part of the reason that Hong Kong is such an important business center is the legal system is more favorable to business. There's much more freedom of speech and freedom of expression in Hong Kong than there is in China. So I think things have heretofore worked out pretty well. There was a lot of fear in the mid-1990s that when China took over Hong Kong, 
that capital would flee from Hong Kong. And that didn't really happen. I think a lot of rich people bought, you know, second homes in Vancouver or Seattle or Toronto, but the business interests really stayed in, in Hong Kong. And I think Hong Kong still retains an importance to China as a kind of window to the West. I, I don't know, people have probably noticed when news reporters are going around and interviewing people on the street in Hong Kong, the level of English of the average person on the street in Hong Kong is really quite high, whereas when they're going around interviewing people in Beijing, it has to be done through an interpreter because ordinary people in China don't speak English the same way they do in Hong Kong. I think that there are a lot of ways in which there are still very strong legacies of British colonialism in Hong Kong. English is one of them. And I think a belief in civil liberties and civil rights is another. It appears that a lot of the protest movements in Hong Kong are driven by younger people. Is that your opinion as well? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of the protests are by younger people, but there have been days when there was a Mother's Day, when mothers marched, and then there was another march when it was a march of accountants. It may well be that lots of the marchers are young people. I don't think that it's restricted to young people. I just saw a short video by Ensign Chang, who was for many years the chief executive of Hong Kong, and she basically said this is a society in trouble and we'd better listen to the protesters or else things are going to get very bad. And she did then come out and condemn violence. You know, uh, I don't know how old she is, but she's not young. I mean, she's probably in her 70s. It was a pretty strong statement saying these people are talking and, and we really need to learn to listen. We're talking with Ann Waltner. She's a professor and chair of the history department at the University of Minnesota. One of her academic specialties is Chinese history. We're talking about the unrest in Hong Kong and the Chinese government's reaction to it. The Umbrella Movement, or the Umbrella Revolution, was a democracy protest that took place in Hong Kong in 2014. How does that movement relate to the protests we're seeing today? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody about this, and they said it was extremely interesting that this group has not called itself the Umbrella Movement. They haven't claimed a connection with it, and... I think when these protesters hold up umbrellas, it's because it's because it's raining. There's a very long tradition of protests in Hong Kong. Every June 4th, there has been a candlelight vigil to commemorate the Tiananmen Massacre. The umbrella movement, um, I think, was connected with the Occupy movement. I think that there is a long tradition of orderly, nonviolent, expression of dissent. I think what's different this time is it is it has lasted longer and there has been violence. It's not been horrific violence, but there has been violence on both sides. And so I think that it has transitioned into something a bit different than those earlier movements. What is President Xi Jinping's motivation for disrupting the status quo between China and Hong Kong? that he would have a motivation in, in disrupting it. I think the status quo has perhaps already been disrupted. I don't know what the Chinese government is going to do about this. It's interesting to watch how, in many ways, how patient 
They have been about the protests. I mean, they've always, you know, since since 49 or even before, they've always been very patient with Hong Kong protesters. It may be to the point now where they feel compelled to intervene, but I don't know. I think that disrupting the status quo is not in China's interest. I think the status quo has served China quite well. We're talking with Ann Waltner. She's a professor and chair of the history department at the University of Minnesota. One of her academic specialties is Chinese history. We're talking about the civil unrest in Hong Kong. Well, how has China responded so far to the current protests? Well, I think at the beginning of the summer, the way they responded was with silence. They blocked internet coverage and things like that. But of course, it's almost impossible to do that successfully. I mean, people will have VPNs, people go back and forth. And so what I think they've done for the last four or five weeks is they've told a narrative that the protesters are disruptors who do not have the best interests of either China or Hong Kong at heart. Um, There's quite a bit of saying that Americans and other outside interests are fomenting unrest in order to damage Hong Kong and China. That's an interesting narrative. I mean, I think it it shows that um, it is no longer possible to pretend nothing is happening. So in some ways, similar to what happened um, with Tiananmen, when the narrative was that there were counter-revolutionary elements that had to be put down. I mean, it's clear that something happened, so a story had to be told. And I think that is the story that's uh, being told now. There's been, oh, I don't know, for the last three or four weeks, news coverage saying that Chinese troops are amassing at, at the border at Shenzhen. There are actually Chinese troops stationed in Hong Kong. And I think that the way it works is, and I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think that Chinese troops really can't intervene in Hong Kong without being asked by the Hong Kong government. Carrie Lam may well at some point decide that she needs the help of the Chinese to put what she would consider to be the rebellion down. But I, you know, I think that intervention by the Chinese military would actually be quite a dreadful thing. And in some ways, I think, could wreck what is so important and special about Hong Kong, not only to Hong Kong, but to China. And that is if, you know, if world financial institutions decide that Hong Kong is not a safe place to be, they will leave. And the the presence of Hong Kong as a world financial center has really been important to China. What role is social media playing in the protests and in China's efforts to quell the unrest? Well, I think social media has been really important in communicating among the protesters. I think it's been really important in getting news out to the rest of the world. You know, I think that protest is not done the same way it was done 25 or 30 years ago. And I think that the Chinese government has also used social media to promote their own narrative about what is happening in Hong Kong. Tell us about America's relationship with Hong Kong. Do we deal with them in a different manner than we do mainland China? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, Hong Kong became a British colony in 1842, and it was a British colony until 1997. And, you know, like like I mentioned earlier, an American does not need a visa to go to Hong Kong. 
And I think that the changes that have happened since 1997 have actually been slower and more measured than we thought they might be. I think that Hong Kong has a completely different feel to it than China does. And so I, I think it's, it, is, it is a very different place than China. I think that 150 years of British imperialism did many things to Hong Kong. And, and one of the things that it did is it made it a very different place than China. This is the 70th anniversary of the communist revolution in China. I would imagine there will be cause for celebration throughout the country. Do you think the unrest in Hong Kong is a distraction to the, um, the celebration that will undoubtedly take place on the 70th anniversary of the revolution? Well, that's an interesting question. I suspect that unless things get a lot more serious in Hong Kong, that it will be possible in the PRC to ignore it. It's the 100th anniversary of the May 4th movement, which was a kind of a, a nationalist cultural movement in 1919 that happened um, largely as a reaction against terms of the Treaty of Versailles. And it really, in, in a lot of ways, was extremely important in creating kind of the cultural space for early Republican China. And that went almost unnoticed in, in May. And then, of course, the, the 40th, no, the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen went unnoticed in, in China, not unexpectedly. But when people were talking about the fact that the May 4th movement, 100th anniversary, was not commemorated in a really, really big way. What people were saying is the big, big, big anniversary this year is the 70th anniversary of the creation of the PRC. And I think that it would be entirely possible for the party within China to take the line that what's happening in Hong Kong is just a distraction. But of course, it all depends on what the situation in Hong Kong in October is. We're looking now, obviously, at a very interesting history of leadership since the Communist Revolution of 1949. Chairman Mao Zedong ruled the country for quite a number of years. Of course, under his rule, uh, there were some very horrific moments in Chinese history, among them the Great Leap Forward that resulted in a great famine, and of course, the infamous Cultural Revolution in 1967. When Mao died, we saw Deng Xiaoping rise to power in China. He tended to open the country up and actually was one of the main impetuses for students from China to study abroad. Is President Xi now moving back on some of the openness we saw during uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, ruling of China? Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no. I don't think that there's any decline in the interest of Chinese students to study abroad. I think they're choosing to go to places other than the United States. I think that Australia and Canada have become much more popular, and that's not actually because of Chinese policy. It's because things that have been happening in the United States. I think that there is an openness and a, an interest in engaging with the rest of the world, and I think one of the differences between, um, say, the early Maoist years and now is China is operating from a position of quite substantial and quite justified confidence. I think that 
they do not perceive themselves as backward and as inferior to the West. And I think that in the in the early 50s, there was a great, you know, I mean, they used words like backwardness themselves. And so I think that there's um, much more of a sense of interacting with foreign countries on a basis of equality. And I think that that's, that's a very good thing. So I don't think that there's a closing off. Having said that, they are very interested in governing what gets said and what shows up on the Internet. I mean, we, we had, an, for example, the University of Minnesota uses Gmail, which is a Google product. It's very hard to use University of Minnesota Mail in China. It's essentially impossible to use Google Docs in China uh, because of tensions with Google and China. Um, the, the Chinese Internet is censored, but censoring the internet is a it's a really hard thing to do i mean there are, you know so so there's an interest in controlling information about the outside world but i don't think that there's an interest in in keeping in keeping chinese from going to the outside world i mean i don't know we we will have thousands of undergraduates who are students at the university of minnesota every large university will have many 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 students from China, who will live in the dorms with other students and take classes with other students and and then, you know, form their opinions of what American society is like and then go back to China. So I think an old-style closing off is really no longer possible. When China opened up its economic markets to the world, there was a hope, I think, in the West that along with the open markets and the uh, the move toward at least a a Chinese form of capitalism that along with that, the government itself would become less authoritarian and perhaps more democratic. Were those hopes misfounded? Well, I think they were. I think that people now realize that, that um, there is no necessary connection between a growth in markets and a growth in political liberalism because there are just too many authoritarian states that have thriving market economies. I mean, I think it's interesting that we that we do sort of there is kind of a common sense assumption that um, that a market economy presumes certain kinds of political arrangements. But I think China is one case that proves that that's probably not true. Korea, South Korea is another. I mean, South Korea thrived economically long before there was any kind of political you know openness to to democratic forms. So I think that, in in a sense, I think that that was wishful thinking. I mean, I think that I mean one can one can overstate the degree to which China is currently a repressive place. I mean, I I remember when I first started going to China, Chinese people were not allowed to come to hotels where foreigners were staying, and foreigners were only allowed to stay in certain hotels. All of that has gone, you know, that there really was a time when foreigners in China were kept apart and kept separate, and that's simply not true anymore. We're talking with Ann Waltner. She's a professor and chair of the history department at the University of Minnesota. One of her academic specialties is Chinese history. We're talking about the unrest in Hong Kong and the Chinese government's reaction to it. We know there was a time in China with a very hardline propaganda approach to dealing with the rest of the world. Uh, If you listen to what was then Radio Peking, 
decades ago. Uh, they would talk about uh, their great leader, Chairman Mao Zedong, and they would talk about American imperialism. Over the years, China began to adopt a soft diplomacy policy. How has that worked for them? Well, I think it's probably worked pretty well. The Confucius Institutes, which um, I think are now becoming a bit controversial in the U.S., but they've been around for 10 years or so, and those are um, Chinese government-funded institutes that are spread all over the world that are designed to teach Chinese language lessons and to have programs on Chinese culture that are by and large quite non-political, but to spread knowledge and good feeling about China. I think that that's been pretty successful. Um, people continue to be interested in China. I think that the soft diplomacy has has been much more effective in dealing with the outside world than the harder, harsher propaganda would be. I, I do have to say that at the same time China was um, engaging in that kind of propaganda, American knee-jerk anti-communist propaganda was um, was pretty bad and pretty appalling. So, I mean, it's not it's not as if it's something they did and, and we didn't do. I mean, I think that, you know, knee-jerk anti-communism is one of the main things that got us into the Korean War and that was, you know, that was just a major global catastrophe. So I think, I hope we've all learned a lot since that time. I, I'm not sure we have. Beyond what's happening in Hong Kong, there are concerns about authoritarian governments throughout the world. Do you feel that democracy is in decline? Well, I think democracy may be in trouble. I think democracy may be in a state of transformation. I mean, I think that one of the things that one might say about the unrest in Hong Kong is, in fact, it shows the vividness and the liveliness of concepts of democracy. I mean, these are people who are willing to go out onto the street day after day after day um, to protest that democracy is something that they desperately and vitally need. And so I think that's a really important thing. And I think that one of the things that is confronting American democracy right now is we're being called upon to demonstrate that we really do believe that all people are created equal. And if we really do believe all people are created equal, then there are all kinds of um, discrepancies and inequalities that we've got to come to terms with. So I think that you know, there may be a way in which democracy is in crisis, but I think one could perhaps be a little bit more optimistic and say that that political forms are, are in transition. And, you know, I mean, our, you know, the sacred founding documents of our country were done by white men who were slaveholders, you know, who stole land from Indians. And that's something that this country's never really come to terms with. What do you think will be the end result of the protests in Hong Kong? Will it return to the status quo? Will its citizens continue to fight for greater independence from China? Or will China seize greater control of the territory? You know, I, I, um, I have no idea. You know, in, in the long run, it's not very long until 2047. And in 2047, according to all the legal instruments, China will have full control of the territory. And so it would seem to me that if I were running China, which is a horrifying thought, playing a long game and waiting would be the way the way to do it. I suspect if the disruption gets really serious, the Chinese might think that they needed to step in. 
Um, and I think that if they were to step in, it would be a clear sign that they had made a decision that they don't really need what Hong Kong has to offer them, that there are that there are other, are other cities um, like Shenzhen, which is just over the border into, into China and is part of a special economic zone, as it is as places like Shenzhen. Um, and, and even Shanghai could take over as the commercial and financial centers that Hong Kong is and that that I think a, a military attack on Hong Kong would come as a result of an, anal- an analysis that Hong Kong is not critically important to China because I think any kind any kind of show of strength would really cause capital flight and capital is one of the things that makes Hong Kong so vital to China. We know that the Chinese government has firm control over the country's media. Do we have any sense of how the unrest in Hong Kong is being reported in China? And do we have any sense of how Chinese people are viewing the unrest? Well, I think that the answer to the second is no, we really don't. Um, I think that the insofar as it's been reported in the media, it's been reported as something that's being fomented by by outsiders including including Americans. I don't think it's been reported hugely widely, but I think for the, I I do know that for the first part of the summer it wasn't being reported at all and now and now it is it is being reported to some degree. Ann Waltner is a professor and chair of the history department at the University of Minnesota. Professor Waltner, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. In the late 1990s, a new genre of television emerged called reality TV. Over the years, many reality TV shows have achieved great rating success, such as Survivor, American Idol, and Big Brother. Prior to his election as president, Donald Trump had his own reality TV show called The Apprentice. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, a University of Minnesota expert on reality TV joins us to discuss the norms, prejudices, and values that the genre promotes, and the similarities between reality TV shows and the way the current White House operates. Be sure to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.